0: And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today?
3: So for this episode, we find ourselves again on the latest debate stage, this one in the industrial Midwest in Ohio, a central battleground state. Now, many of your favorite politicians are going to be on the stage, but some of them are going to be under attack more than others. In particular, quite a few criticisms are going to be directed toward Elizabeth Warren from the other Democrats. They're really going to be going after her in this debate but also continuing their criticisms of Joe Biden. It's that whole idea of trying to knock down the frontrunners. Now, in this first clip, we're going to be listening to the candidates' debate on healthcare, on Medicare for all, and really examining their persuasion strategies of how are they using yes and no questions? How do they twist it? How do they spin it? How do they start to use transitional phrases to move from one thing to another? But before we get to that, though, we wanted to let you know that we have a special episode on our Patreon page that talks about symbology and how symbols are used within persuasion. And some of that you're going to hear featured in the debate today. And that episode is for subscribers only. Now, for as little as a cup of coffee, you can support the show and also get all of the great content that we're going to be loading up on the Patreon as time moves onward so let's take a listen to this first clip where you're going to hear elizabeth warren talking about health care for all
5: senator warren we've proposed you've proposed some sweeping plans free public college free universal child care eliminating most americans college debt and you've said how you're going to pay for those plans but you have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan medicare for all will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no?
6: So I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations, and for hardworking middle class families, costs will go down. Uh, you know, the way I see this is. I have been out all around this country. I've done 140 town halls now, been to 27 states and Puerto Rico. Should have done 70,000 selfies, which must be the new measure of democracy. And this gives people a chance to come up and talk to me directly. So I've talked with the family, the mom and dad whose daughter's been diagnosed with cancer. I have talked to the young woman whose mother has just been diagnosed with diabetes. I've talked to the young man who has MS. And here's the thing about all of them. They all had great health insurance right at the beginning. But then they found out when they really needed it, when the costs went up, that the insurance company pulled the rug out from underneath them, and they were left with nothing. Look, the way I see this, it is hard enough to get a diagnosis that your child has cancer, to think about the changes in your family if your mom's got diabetes, or what it means for your life going forward if you've been diagnosed with MS. But what you shouldn't have to worry about is how you're going to pay for your health care after that.
5: Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for medicare for all you've endorsed his plan should you acknowledge it too so
6: the way i see this it is about what kinds of costs middle class families are going to face so let me be clear on this costs will go up for the wealthy they will go up for big corporations and for middle class families they will go down i will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families
5: Mayor Buttigieg, you say Senator Warren has been, quote, evasive about how she's going to pay for Medicare for all. What's your response?
7: Well, we heard it tonight. A yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Look, this is why people here in the Midwest are so frustrated with Washington in general and Capitol Hill in particular. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. No plan has been laid out to explain how a multi-trillion dollar hole in this Medicare for All plan that Senator Warren is putting forward is supposed to get filled in. And the thing is, we really can deliver health care for every American and move forward with the boldest, biggest transformation since the inception of Medicare itself. But the way to do it without a giant multi-trillion dollar hole and without uh, having to avoid a yes or no question is Medicare for all who want it. We take a version okay. of Medicare. We let you access it if you want to. And if you prefer to stay on your private plan, you can do that, too. That is what most Americans want. Medicare for all who want it. Trusting you to make the right decision for your health care and for your family. And it can be delivered Thank you, Mayor. without an increase. Senator, on
5: your cost- response.
3: All right. So here we have. Elizabeth Warren starting off with her story about how she meets people on the campaign trail. Her idea of selfies, that's the new measure of democracy. And then she leads into, what do selfies actually mean? Well, this is the chance for her to be able to tell a story. So this gives people a chance, she says, to come up and talk to me directly. So I talk to, and now she goes into, the person who had health insurance. And who wasn't able to have it after that. The, the dad who had this, the mom who had this, the little girl who, right? And then they go into their stories about what it is. This is what Elizabeth Warren is doing right here. And as she goes into that, this is her ability to engage the emotions, engage what a person is thinking about and feeling. And then once she goes into the whole selfie idea, then what she starts talking about is the value behind healthcare the value behind it. Uh, you should, you know, worry about this. You should worry about that. Of course, you're going to worry if someone has diabetes or if they have MS. But what you shouldn't worry about is how you're going to pay for it.
0: Yeah, so what she does there is she starts, of course, by reintroducing herself with those uh, with those stories and with the selfies sort of get everybody into a positive emotional state. Um, and she, you know, one thing that Warren does a really great job of is leaning on those personal stories. So even right here in healthcare, and you'll see in other parts of her her debate performance, she always tries to sort of bring it back to, you know, that one person that she met. And that's sort of a common tactic. That's, you know, a lot of politicians do that. You take a look back at some of our episodes on President Obama, um, and you'll see that he does that quite a bit. It's a very effective way to sort of localize a big issue into, you know, a tiny little microcosm that somebody in the audience could relate to. And uh, and then we get to to Buttigieg here, and he is really coming out swinging. Um, and I think that this is a fantastic moment where he has a moment to you know attack who might be the front runner, Elizabeth Warren, and you know he really turns her uh, her catchphrase, "I've got a plan for that," on its head. Uh, he sort of says that you've got a plan for everything except this. Um, And so, you know, it's really a great moment for him to, um, you know, take a uh, a, a sort of the polar opposite uh, perspective and demeanor to what she's got. She's got a very reserved, a very good uh, uh, planning, methodical presentation to her performance right there. And he comes at her knowing she's going to behave like this because this is planned. So he knows that she's going to be very cerebral and very... Um, you know, uh, very methodical. And he comes out in a very emotional, a very a very gut um, uh, positioning there where, where he's saying, you know, yeah, this, this, uh, this is all great and everything that you're promising is wonderful, but, you know, that doesn't help real Americans. That doesn't help, you know, people um, who, uh, you know, who uh, might not want this plan Um, And also, how are you going to pay for it? Like, that's a big deal. And you can sort of see the way, both if you were watching this live and you saw his facial expressions and, you know, how he has clear outrage and clear indignation and and almost an empathy for the, you know, middle class, um, uh, Midwestern person, because, you know, he uses that phrase, um, you know, I don't, this is why people in the Midwest can't trust um, what you're saying He sort of has that moment where he's speaking to a very core group of people, Iowa voters, um, by relating to them and maybe their more conservative ideology uh, to the rest of the Democratic Party. So, you know, this is really a great moment just to show off Pete Buttigieg and why he appeals to so many people. And then we sort of see how Warren deals with this, uh, maybe not expecting to be uh, so vigorously attacked.
3: Yeah. And we hear we're going to hear this through all of Pete Buttigieg's clips here is that this is really a talking point that he has wanted to distinguish himself from everyone else on the stage. So his idea, him as a candidate, what he has built himself up is, is I am the, the industrial Midwest, right? He's saying, I know what it's like in real America. I don't know what it's like in Washington because the people in the Midwest, what they hear is this you're talking about Washington. I'm going to talk about the Midwest. And so he's going to keep coming back to that idea. And you hear it in even the way that he labeled his plan, right? Medicare for all who want it. And so this is about a choice. He's gonna, You're going to hear him uh, labeling later on. And he says, we're going to be trusting you Here, what he's he's implying here is that the people in Washington, they're not trusting you, right? We're going to trust you to make sure that you can make the right choice. And the way to do it is we're going to do this and this and this policy. The way to do it without having to avoid or yes or no answer on a question is to have Medicare for all who want it. Now, in this next clip here, we're going to be continuing this sparring match between Buttigieg and Warren, and we're going to hear... How does Elizabeth Warren now respond to this criticism that Buttigieg has laid out? Let's take a listen.
6: So let's be clear. Whenever someone hears the term Medicare for all who want it, understand what that really means. It's Medicare for all who can afford it. And that's the problem we've got. Medicare for all is the gold standard. It is the way we get health care coverage for every single American, including the family whose child's been diagnosed with cancer, including the person who's just gotten an MS diagnosis. That's how we make sure that everyone gets health care. We can pay for this. I've laid out the basic principles. Costs are going to go up for the wealthy. They're going to go up for big corporations. They will not go up for middle class families. And I will not sign a bill into law that raises their costs because costs are what people care about. I've been studying this, you know, for the biggest thank, part of my you, life. Thank you, Senator. Why can the, go can the mayor
5: mayor respond? Sure.
7: I don't think the American people are wrong when they say that what they want is a choice, and the choice of Medicare for all who want it, which is affordable for everyone because we make sure that the subsidies are in place, allows you to get that health care. It's just better than Medicare for all, whether you want it or not. And I don't understand why you believe the only way. To deliver affordable coverage to everybody is to obliterate private plans, kicking 150 million Americans off of their insurance in four short years. When we could achieve that same big, bold goal, and once again, we got to be president. We're competing to be president for the day after Trump. Our country will be horrifyingly polarized, even more than now. After everything we've been through. After everything we are about to go through, this country will be even more divided. Why unnecessarily divide this country over healthcare when there's a better way to deliver coverage for all?
0: Yes, so the most important thing that we see right here is the maneuvering that Warren does. So she gets out there and she says, anyone who says Medicare for all who want it, that really means anyone uh, who can afford it. And that's really important because, you know, And I can't emphasize this enough. When she does that right there, she's basically dismissing any other plan and saying that, you know, these other plans are not even trying. You're not even you're not even giving it a shot. You're you are you know, you might as well sit with what we've got already, because if you're not doing it my way, then you might as well be doing nothing at all. She sort of does this. She she redefines this with you know complex equivalence, um, and it, you know it's really masterful and it's a great. She's been doing this debate after debate after debate, and you've seen that the people that she that she does this to are sort of flummoxed and they don't really know how to handle it. But you see Buddha judge here. He's already been prepared for this response, and you you know that he's already you know sat there and thought about what her response to this might be, and has prepared sort of that, that clever response that he has um, when he goes into this.
3: Yeah, you know, what I really like about Elizabeth Warren's preparation here is that she knows that people are going to question the cost of the plans. So she has, and this is repeatedly throughout these debates and repeatedly throughout her, anytime she's questioned about that, she has this standard line she says. She says costs are going to go up. And then she pauses And then she says, for big corporations and for the wealthy, costs will go down for the middle class and for hardworking Americans. When she says that costs are going to go up, it's almost as though this moment of insight, this moment where she's suddenly telling the truth. But because of that pause, it creates what's known as a punctuational ambiguity. And so it leaves it ambiguous about what what does she really mean that the costs will actually go up? Well, they are going to go up for these people. So think about what she's doing. She's inoculating that any time someone in the future says, well, Warren's plan is going to make it so that costs will go up, she says, you're right, they will go up. But it's a question of who are they going to go up for. And they will go down for these other people. It's a clever little way of avoiding the whole idea of We're going to have to actually put money into something in order to to improve things. You know, raising taxes is not a popular plan for anyone. And, you know, when you talk about raising taxes or anything costing more ever, people don't like that. But if you can redefine it as you're not going to pay, someone else is going to pay then it becomes a little bit more acceptable. Then it becomes something they can, they can swallow. And then Buttigieg here really goes in and he has this, he goes back to that talking point that I was talking about. He was describing how I don't think the American people are wrong for wanting a choice. And think about how big of a straw man argument that is, of course, because no one actually said that the American people don't want a choice. But this is how he frames it. It's really a brilliant little line there that he says. And then he said, I don't understand why you believe the only way is to obliterate private plans, kicking Americans off their plans in four short years. So you're going to obliterate their plans and you're going to kick them off of their plans. And then he goes back to this idea of the country will be even more divided. Now, some people might not care about that. You know, some some, especially some on the more progressive wing might say, well, who cares? The country's already divided. If it's more divided, that really doesn't matter to me in my life. But think about who is he appealing to? He's appealing to the moderate. He's appealing to the centrist. He wants to talk to the person who feels like the country is basically polarized too much already. So when he says the country will be more divided, that's a big thing, even though it's more of a subtle messaging.
0: So in this next clip, you're going to hear a really interesting interaction between Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. And now I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. First, listen to how Klobuchar uh, sort of... Picks up on Buddha Judge's framing, um, she sort of picks up the mantle of, you know, your way isn't the only way, Elizabeth Warren. And then listen to how Elizabeth Warren responds. Yet again, instead of getting emotional, she's coming from a more diet, more, you know, sitting down and, and contemplate all of the issues. Um, I, I've spent my entire life studying these things. And meanwhile, Klobuchar is taking Buddha Judge's angle. Of uh, you know, this is a very visceral reaction, this is an emotional issue, and we need to be focusing on you know the emotional components of it. And you know, I'll leave it up to you to decide, you know, which one is most appealing to you know yourself and maybe other listeners.
8: At least Bernie's being honest here and saying how he's gonna pay for this and that taxes are gonna go up. And I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you have not said that, and I think we owe it to the American people to tell them where we're gonna send the invoice. I believe the best and boldest idea here is to not trash Obamacare but to do exactly what Barack Obama wanted to do from the beginning and that's have a public option that would bring down the cost of the premium and expand the number of people covered and take on the pharmaceutical companies. That is what we should be doing uh, instead of kicking 149 million people off their insurance in four years. And I'm tired of hearing whenever I say these things, oh it's Republican talking points. You are making Republican talking points right now in this room by coming out for a plan that's going to do that. I think there is a better way that is bold that will cover more people and it's the one we should get behind. Senator Warren. You no, know, I didn't spend most
6: of my time in Washington. I spent most of my time studying one basic question and that is why hardworking people go broke. And one of the principal reasons for that is the cost of health care. And back when I was studying it, Two out of every three families that ended up hmm. in bankruptcy after a serious medical problem had health insurance. The problem we've got right now is the overall cost of health care. And look, you can try to spend this any way you want. I've spent my entire life on working on how america's middle class has been hollowed out and how we fight back i've put out nearly 50 plans on how we can fight back and how we can rebuild an america that works and a part of that is we thank have you, got to stop Sen- americans from going
8: bankrupt over
6: health senator costs.
8: klobuchar do you want to respond uh yes i do and i appreciate elizabeth's work but again Um, the difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done, and we can take on the pharmaceutical companies and bring down the prices. But what really bothers me about this discussion, which we've had so many times, is that we don't talk about the things that I'm hearing about from regular Americans. That is long-term care. We are seeing, I once called it a silver tsunami, the aging, and then someone told me that was too negative, so I call it the silver surge, the aging of the population we need to make it easier to get long-term care insurance and strengthen Medicaid. In this state, the state of Ohio, that has been hit by the opioid epidemic, we need to take on those pharma companies and make them pay for the addictions that they have caused and the people that they have thank, killed. Thank you, Senator. Those are the issues thank that you, Senator. Vice President, I'd like to be. Letter.
3: All right. So here we hear another big contentious back and forth between Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar and. You know, Klobuchar really starts out swinging, at least Bernie's being honest. and I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you are not doing that. Now, what we're hearing is that Klobuchar is really going to be going after Warren and basically this entire debate. I mean, she really goes after her pretty hard. She's one of the main people that she is attacking and, you know, hitting at, you know, hard with that. And if you think about calling someone dishonest, that's a pretty strong criticism, um, and it's one in which you really have to then, you know, back up. And she says, you're making the Republicans talking points for them right here in this room. And then Warren goes back and she talks about spinning it and she talks about her history is basically what she did in that you know, response. You know, uh, I've spent my entire life. I've put out over 50 plans. This is what I've done. That is what I've done. And then Klobuchar responds to that and says, "Well, I appreciate that Warren has put out plans, but the difference between a plan and a pipe dream—this was a nice little, you know, phrase that, of course, was thought up beforehand. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you get done." Okay, interesting. And then she goes on to talking about her whole thing of long-term care, and <laughs> I like this moment where she says, um, "You know, we." Have this thing, I you know, I called it a a silver this, but I redefined it. They didn't like that. They told me that that was you know too um, too direct, and so now I call it a silver surge. And so that was that was really a funny moment there. Yeah,
0: it's really fascinating to see the way that she's almost teaming up with Buddha Judge and the moderates um, to uh, to get on Elizabeth Warren. Notice how she's not really criticizing Bernie Sanders in this moment. In fact, she gives credit to Bernie Sanders for quote-unquote being honest about how he's going to pay for it, and then immediately focuses the rest of her, uh, her time there, focusing on Elizabeth Warren and how you know, she's sick and tired of, you know, the, the my plan is the only way language. And so uh, that's really important because, of course, Elizabeth Warren is surging in the polls right now and they need to be picking off votes from her Well, whereas Bernie Sanders, you know, just had a heart attack and is, you know, floundering in the polls. Um, And so it's going to be really interesting to see exactly, you know, going forward, are they going to continue uh, dogpiling on Warren? Or, you know, are they going to get back to attacking Biden or Sanders or anything else? But, you know, I find it really interesting that she spent so much time um, going after Elizabeth Warren and in this sort of emotional way to contrast her, you know, cerebral, I've, I've been studying this my entire life. I know what's best for the American people. And, and we've got Klobuchar saying, you know, uh, I know what real people are like in the real world, not just behind, you know, a college desk. Um, and so that's what's really fascinating here.
3: Yeah. And in this next clip here, we're going to be listening to the moderators are going to be switching gears a little bit and they're going to be talking and asking about, of course, well, we've talked about the main contentious point that hits people's wallets, which is healthcare. And now we're going to be talking about jobs and automation and is a robot going to take over your job? And so we're going to be hearing here first from Bernie Sanders, where he's going to be giving his view, but then getting into, of course, Um, Andrew Yang, who's going to be talking about jobs and automation. And of course, the moderators are picking very closely who they ask these questions to, who they think is going to be around and who they think that people want to hear from on that issue. So let's take a listen to this clip.
9: According to a recent study, about a quarter of American jobs could be lost to automation in just the next 10 years. Ohio is one of the states likely to be hardest hit. Senator Sanders, you say your federal jobs guarantee is part of the answer to the threat from automation, but tens of millions of Americans could end up losing their jobs. Are you promising that you will have a job for every single one of those Americans?
2: Damn right, we will, and I'll tell you why. If you look at what goes on in America today, we have an infrastructure which is collapsing. We could put 15 million people to work, Rebuilding our roads, our bridges, our water systems, our wastewater plants, airports, etc. Furthermore, and I hope we will discuss it at length tonight, this planet faces the greatest threat in its history from climate change. And the Green New Deal that I have advocated will create up to 20 million jobs as we move away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. We need workers to do childcare. We need workers, great teachers, to come in to school systems which don't have the teachers that we need right now. We need more doctors. We need more dentists. We need more carpenters. We need more sheet metal workers. And when we talk about making public colleges and universities tuition-free and canceling student debt, we're going to give those people the opportunity to get those good jobs.
9: Senator Sanders, thank you. Mr. Yang, your main solution to job loss from automation is a universal basic income. Why is giving people $1,000 a month better than Sanders' plan to get guaranteeing them a job?
10: I am for the spirit of a federal jobs guarantee, but you have to look at how it would actually materialize in practice. What are the jobs? Who manages you? What if you don't like your job? What if you're not good at your job? The fact is, Most Americans do not want to work for the federal government and saying that that is the vision of the economy of the 21st century to me is not a vision that most Americans would embrace. Also, Senator Sanders description of a federal jobs guarantee does not take into account the work of people like my wife who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. We have a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month. It actually recognizes the work that is happening in our families and our communities. It helps all Americans transition. Because the fact is, and you know this in Ohio, if you rely upon the federal government to target its resources, you wind up with failed retraining programs and jobs that no one wants. When we put the money into our hands, we can build a trickle-up economy from our people, our families, and our communities up, it will enable us to do the kind of work that we want to do. This is the sort of positive vision in response to the fourth industrial revolution that we have to embrace as a party. Senator uh, Senator
9: Booker, a federal jobs guarantee or $1,000 a month, are those the best solutions there? Please respond.
11: Well, first of all, I'm happy to get in finally, and I just want to say, as a great... As a great New and Yogi Berra said, I am having deja vu all over again. I'm having deja vu all over again, first of all, because I saw this play in 2016's election. We are literally using Donald Trump's lies, and the second issue we cover on this stage is elevating a lie and attacking a statesman. That was so offensive. He should not have to defend ourselves, and the only person sitting at home that was enjoying that was Donald Trump seeing that we're distracting from his malfeasance and selling out of his office. And I'm having deja vu all over again. And I'm having deja vu all over again because we have another healthcare debate and we're not talking about the clear and existential threat in America that we're in a state that has had two Planned Parenthoods close. We are seeing all over this country women's reproductive rights under attack. And God bless Kamala. But you know what? Women should not be the only ones taking up this cause and this fight. And then it is not just because women are our daughters and our friends and our wives. It's because women are people and people deserve to control their own body. Senator,
9: thank you.
0: So here we're talking about jobs and automation. And we're sort of here Sanders give his usual, right? He talks about Uh, you know, all the jobs disappearing, how, you know, the millionaires and billionaires and and he's sort of got his stump together again. Um, What's interesting here is to listen to Andrew Yang and the contrast between the two of them. And so again, I, I want us to listen to the contrast between these people. We've got Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang, just like Klobuchar versus Elizabeth Warren One is coming from a very, you know, thinking and analytical point of view, and the other is fighting for the emotional angle of it. And you can sort of understand which candidate might be doing better in the polls and for why, um, but it's almost the reverse. So we've got Sanders here where he's very emotional about these issues. You know, he's doing his screaming and his shouting um, about how unjust it is. And that appeals to a lot of people. And then you've got Andrew Yang, who's always looking at things from a very analytical point of view. And so he talks about, you know, what he knows as a businessman from Silicon Valley and talking about, you know, his his insights into exactly how we rebuild, um, and he uses the word trickle up economy. And then we've got Booker, who jumps in, and it's almost as if he wanted to keep, he had prepared lines for, you know, some of the healthcare stuff that he didn't get a chance to say. And he comes in, to somehow turns a conversation about jobs and automation into a discussion on abortion. But you know what? He's able to make it work by getting in some snappy one-liners there that really turn the audience to his side. So they almost forget what they were all talking about. So now the focus of this whole discussion is, about, is on Booker and no longer on Sanders and Andrew Yang. And so it's a really cool way that he managed to to do some jujitsu there to just turn the whole conversation over to what he wants to talk about because he was able to use some snappy lines.
3: Yeah. He has that whole thing about, I'm happy to get in, you know, finally. And he really was, you know, quite upset about that. Cause earlier in the debate, he had had a little bit of a thing with the moderators where he was just trying to talk and they wouldn't let him talk. Uh, he comes in with that quote, you know, from Yogi Berra um, from New Jersey And we're literally using Donald Trump's lies, you know, elevating a lie and then attacking, you know, another Democrat, a statesman. And really going back to that whole generic idea that they were talking about. Now, in the first part of this clip, of course, we heard Bernie Sanders talking about how we're going to guarantee a job to everyone, which is an interesting idea. I don't know how feasible that actually is in practice, Um, but then Andrew Yang really comes in and, you know, just like Alex said, you hear the emotion versus the logic. And Andrew Yang is coming in, but he does have a couple of little clever ways of spinning things. And so one thing is that he calls it a freedom dividend. And, you know, it's like this is the financial guy, right? You know, he can't he can't call it anything that's that's not financial. So he calls it a freedom dividend dividend, you know, $1,000 a month, a universal basic income. Um, He's a really, you know, big um, proponent of that. And he says that it's a part of the positive response to the fourth industrial revolution that we can then embrace as a party. And so what we hear here is really three different styles. We hear the emotional idea appealing to people's values. That's what Bernie Sanders said. We hear the very analytical, logical side coming in, like Andrew Yang. And then we hear Cory Booker just coming in and just changing the whole framework of it. Also very emotional, but then really moving to something else. And then he talks about this existential threat. Now, at this point, I really thought he was going to start talking about climate change, but not climate change. He's talking about Planned Parenthood. It's the, accident, the clear and existential threat that we've had two Planned Parenthoods close. And then earlier on in the debate, Kamala Harris was bringing up reproductive rights and when, uh, when the healthcare thing came up. And he just completely hijacks what Kamala was saying. Even though he's saying, you know, God bless her, he just completely hijacks what she was saying. And then he makes him the champion of it by having that bigger voice. Now, Kamala Harris does come back later on in the debate and, you know, bring herself, you know, further, further into that issue and make herself the proponent of it. Um, but it is a little bit of a tug of war between them who can care more about reproductive rights. So in this next clip here, we're going to be listening to Bernie Sanders and they're going to be asking about an income inequality. And, Does Bernie Sanders like talking about income inequality? You bet he does. He has a whole thing to say about this. So let's take a listen to how he talks about this in his very strong way, having the guts to say it the way that people really need to hear it.
9: Income inequality is growing in the United States at an alarming rate. The top 1% now own more of this nation's wealth than the bottom 90% combined. Senator Sanders. When you introduced your wealth tax, which would tax the assets of the wealthiest Americans, you said, quoting you, Senator, billionaires should not exist. Is the goal of your plan to tax billionaires out of existence?
2: When you have a half a million Americans sleeping out on the street today, when you have 87 people, 87 million people, uninsured or underinsured, when you got hundreds of thousands of kids who cannot afford to go to college and millions struggling with the oppressive burden of student debt. And then you also have three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society. That is a moral and economic outrage. And the truth is, we cannot afford to continue this level of income and wealth inequality. And we cannot afford a billionaire class whose greed and corruption has been at war with the working families of this country for 45 years. So if you're asking me, do I think we should demand that the wealthy start paying the wealthiest, top one-tenth of one percent, start paying their fair share of taxes so we can create a nation and a government that works for all of us, yes, that's exactly what I believe.
9: Thank you, Senator.
0: So Bernie does a really great job here. Um, And so he's asked a very straightforward question, um, albeit maybe a little unfair. Is the goal of your plan to tax billionaires out of existence? And what he does here is he manages to somehow reframe the entire question. So now, you know, he builds up, he starts with this story, going into the story, um, and he, he sort of builds up all of the foundation for his point. So if you think about it right here, what he's doing is he's sort of mimicking the way that the human brain might come to a conclusion. So he sort of walks through sort of, uh, you know, an an as-if frame of of pretending as though these things uh, in this world exist the way that they are. And then he, after he builds up the scenario, he ends it with, you know, if you're asking me if the wealthy should pay their fair share, then yes, that's what I believe. And so he's he's changed the entire question from planning to tax billionaires out of existence. He's built up this entire, you know, world of his own, um, which may or may not be connected to reality, and then concludes it by, you know, asking himself a completely different question with a lot of caveats, because he has a lot of sort of... Uh, of of commas there in that, in that question and then answers it, um, in in sort of a way that, well, of course everybody would agree with him. Um, if all these things were true and that question was being asked.
3: Yeah. It's what you just heard here from Bernie is an excellent example of spin. How does someone take a question that was asked from them? How do they pace the question but at the same time appear to be answering the question, but at the same time answer something else. And he did it here very expertly. And so his first three words out of his mouth were, when you have. So when you have. Now notice he's not saying, this is what my goal is. He's, again, not giving a yes or no answer. And he just says, when you have. And then he starts to describe this reality, as Alex was just saying, in this kind of as-if frame type of idea But he's using the word you, which is it's as though he's talking directly to a person. And so I just love how he does that there in in language. And he talks about all of those kind of pacing statements. And remember, a pacing statement is acknowledging where a person is, either in their thought process or either what's going on around them. And then he says that is a moral and economic outrage. Well, see, I can understand how it's a moral outrage. I don't know what an economic outrage actually is. What does it mean for something to be an economic outrage? Isn't that the same thing as a moral outrage? You know, but when you say it so closely together there, people go, oh, yeah, my my pocketbook is outraged. Like it can't be outraged because it's not a thing. And he says we cannot afford to continue. We cannot afford this. We cannot afford that. And when we think about what is he saying when he says we cannot afford, well, that word afford is what we call an unspecified verb. So he's not telling us in what way something is going to be or not able to be afforded. We cannot afford. Well, on what level is he saying that that's true? Does he mean literally financially? Or does he mean we cannot afford it in terms of our emotional well-being, in terms of our social fabric, in terms of our structure of government or rules? What does he mean by that? It's very broad, and yet the way he says it is just so quick, and people go, yes, I understand we cannot afford it, but what does afford actually mean? And then, yeah, once he's built up this whole thing, he kind of chooses his own question to ask himself, if you're asking me this... And then he answers his own question, which, of course, seems now a lot more credible because of all of these things and emotional scenarios that he's just walked you through. So even though this was a short clip, I think that this was really a quite brilliant little reframe here that Bernie Sanders did that actually had quite a lot in it.
0: So in this next clip, we're going to be turning over to foreign policy, and this is really where they get a great chance to beat up on Donald Trump. Um, and meanwhile, maybe put together some, some loose frames of what they might actually do, when in reality, they pretty much just lean on principles um, and, and bashing on sort of Trump's decision. So if you take a listen here and sort of hear where it all comes together.
12: I want to turn now to foreign policy. President Trump ordered the withdrawal of all American forces from northern Syria, abandoning America's longtime Kurdish allies, As a result, Turkey has now invaded Syria, ISIS detainees have escaped, and the Kurds have announced a new deal with the government in Damascus, a victory for Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad and Russia and Iran. Vice President Biden, we know you would not have withdrawn troops from northern Syria in this way, but that is already in process, so would you send American troops back into northern Syria to prevent an ISIS resurgence and protect our Kurdish allies?
4: I would not have withdrawn the troops, and I would not have drawn the additional 1,000 troops who are in Iraq, which are in retreat now, being fired on by Assad's people, and the President of the United States saying, if those, if those ISIS folks escape from the prisons they're in, they'll only go to Europe and won't affect us. It has been the most shameful thing that, I've, that any president has done in modern history, excuse <laughs> me, in terms of foreign policy. And the fact of the matter is, I've never seen a time And I've spent thousands of hours in the Situation Room. I've spent many hours on the ground in those very places in Syria and in Iraq. And guess what? Our commanders across the board, former and present, are ashamed of what's happening here. What I would do is I would be making it real clear to Assad that, in fact, where he's going to have a problem because Turkey is the real problem here. And I would be having a real lockdown conversation with Erdogan and letting him know that he's going to pay a heavy price for what he has done. Now, pay that price.
12: Just to clarify, Mr. Vice President, would you want American troops back in northern I Syria? I would want
4: those thousand troops to be protected by air cover, those thousand troops that are being, having to withdraw under fire, make it clear that they're not going anywhere, and have them protected, and work my way back toward what, in fact, needs to be done Protecting those Kurds. They lost their lives. This is shameful, shameful what this man has done.
3: All right. So here we hear Joe Biden being asked this question about foreign policy, about Syria and the Kurds, and Donald Trump's recent decision that, and set of decisions that have really created a lot of turmoil in the region. Um, his very um, shall we say, undiplomatic letter to the Turkish president and so many other things that have been going on. And what Biden here does is that he really just goes over his record. He's leaning on the experience that he has And I guess the main thing that you hear from him is talking about how he was in the situation room and he's been on all these places. And so in a way, he references these places and building himself up as this is the guy that has the experience. This is the guy who knows about foreign policy. And really, if you think about it, why are they asking Biden this question first Because they know he's going to have a strong response. The next person they're going to ask is Tulsi Gabbard. They know she's going to have a strong response. And so the reason they're asking this to Biden is that it's kind of predictable what he's going to come back with. So this is what you hear from him. But unlike some other points within the debates, what you see is a very, a gesture, if you're watching this um, in a visual setting, what you see here is a gesture that they oftentimes train politicians out of, which is finger-pointing. And Biden has his full finger extended, and it is tense, and it is hard, and he is pointing his finger, and he is saying they lost their lives. This is shameful, shameful what this man has done. And he's just building up this kind of sense of how he is going to, you know, like he said against Trump, if this were the high school days, I'd take him, you know, in, in the back behind the stadium, and, you know, we would have... We would fight it out. Um, so that's basically what Biden is communicating here is, I'm strong, I'm tough, I have the experience, that's what you need to look at you know, with regard to me. Yeah, he's really summoned up
0: this outrage, and this is something that Biden does a lot. So first, there's two things. He goes over his record and leans in on that experience. That's something that, ev- it's almost every question you ask Biden. He just goes into this long list of things that he's done. Um, and then he does get that outrage, which, you know, you see question after question, he builds into that outrage until he's screaming Uh, almost, you know, sometimes you you kind of wonder, you know, why, why is he (laughs) yelling this much? But he sort of builds into that outrage. And I think maybe like he's building on some of that, uh, of that Bernie Sanders energy. Right. Um, And it allows him also to seem more genuine And to seem more authentic, like he really emotionally, deeply cares about these issues. And it makes him seem more sharp as if he knows what he's talking about as well, because he can say it with such force and such certainty based on all of his experience. And so he's really leaning heavily on all this. These are, by the way, all of his strong points as well. So he's not really reaching out to any other base. Like he's really trying to, um, you know, get people to understand why other people like him. It's for these, the, his experience, his forcefulness and his sort of emotional uh, understanding of the issue. And so um, that's what, that's what's uh, you know, really stand out in his performance.
3: Yeah. And in this next clip here, we're going to be listening to as they continue to ask about foreign policy. As I mentioned, the next person they're going to ask is Tulsi Gabbard. She's going to have a good response. But then you're going to hear Elizabeth Warren and you're going to hear Pete Buttigieg really pile up on her response and actually a good deal of contentiousness that's going to go back and forth between them. So this could be uh, quite interesting for you to listen to. And uh, let's go ahead and take a listen to this clip.
12: Congresswoman Gabbard, last week you said that American troops should get out of Syria now. You don't agree with how the president handled the withdrawal What would you have done differently? How would you have pulled out troops without the bloodshed we're seeing now?
13: Oh, first of all, we've got to understand the reality of the situation there, which is that the slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand, but so do many of the politicians in our country from both parties who have supported this ongoing regime change war in Syria that started in 2011 along with many in the mainstream media who have been championing and cheerleading this regime change war. Not only that but uh, New York Times and CNN have also smeared veterans like myself for calling for an end to this regime change war. Uh, Just two days ago the New York Times put out an article saying that I'm a, a Russian Assad and an Assad apologist and all these different smears. This morning a CNN commentator said on national television that I'm an asset of Russia. Completely despicable. As president, I will end these regime change wars by doing two things. Ending the draconian sanctions that are really a modern day siege, the likes of which we are seeing Saudi Arabia wage against Yemen that have caused tens and thousands of Syrian civilians to die and to starve. And I would make sure that we stop supporting terrorists like al-Qaeda in Syria, who've been the ground force in this ongoing regime change war. I'd like to ask Senator Warren if she would join me in calling for an end to this regime change war in Syria, finally.
6: So look, I think that we ought to get out of the Middle East. I don't think we should have troops in the Middle East. But we have to do it the right way, the smart way. What this president has done is that he has sucked up to dictators. He has made impulsive decisions that often his own team doesn't understand. He has cut and run on our allies. And he has enriched himself at the expense of the United States of America. In Syria, he has created a bigger than ever humanitarian crisis. He has helped ISIS get another foothold, a new lease on life. I sit on the Armed Services Committee. I talk with our military leaders about you, this. Senator. I was in Iraq and went through the neighborhoods that ISIS destroyed. We need to thank get you. out, but we need to do this through a negotiated solution. There yeah, is you, no Senator. military solution Mayor in this
12: region. Mayor Buttigieg, like many of your fellow candidates on the stage, you've been calling for an end to endless wars. What's your response on Syria?
7: Well, respectfully, Congresswoman, I think that is dead wrong. The slaughter going on in Syria is not a consequence of American presence. It's a consequence of a withdrawal and a betrayal by this president of American allies and American values. Look, I didn't think we should have gone to Iraq in the first place. I think we need to get out of Afghanistan. But it's also the case that a small number of specialized special operations forces and intelligence capabilities were the only thing that stood between that part of Syria and what we're seeing now, which is the beginning of a genocide and the resurgence of ISIS. Meanwhile, soldiers in the field are reporting that for the first time, they feel ashamed, ashamed of what their country has done. We saw the spectacle, the horrifying sight of a woman with the lifeless body of her child in her arms, asking what the hell happened to American leadership. And when I was deployed, I knew one of the things keeping me safe was the fact that the flag on my shoulder represented a country known to keep its word. And our allies knew it. And our
0: enemies you You
7: take that away you are taking away what makes america america it makes our troops and the world a much more dangerous place
0: wow and so here we've got you know really a lot to break down here first off we've got tulsi gabbard who um you know i think she really hits it head on right there where she is now directly addressing the concept that she might be a russian asset or an Assad apologist, um, and you know, which there is mounting evidence that she might be. So we've got this phrase that she continues to use, which is this regime, regime change war. And you know what that means right there is, is really that's sort of, uh, uh, those are Assad Russian talking points. Um, and she uses that over and over and over again um and it's it's almost to the point where it's like baffling it's like almost like did somebody put you up to this like did you really like did you just come up with this and then you're going to it's it's so unnatural that it's hard to believe that any candidate or candidate's campaign really like coached themselves into saying that so many times so awkwardly um so it's really quite bizarre so much so that at the end she's trying to influence the larger democratic field by forcing them to engage with her on this field on this field of that term the regime change war by asking warren if she's going to join her and calling to an end to it and so that's really weird and so uh you know and warren as you can imagine is like equally shocked at this question and baffled, almost, that she has that, that uh, she's, like, shaking her head and pausing before she pivots to just talking about re- withdrawing from the Middle East responsibly entirely. So, uh, so Gabbard's really, really trying to push out the, uh, perhaps, Russian and Assad agenda here into the wider conversation. And I think it's, one last point here, it's really interesting to see her take down the mainstream media in the way that she does as well so it's almost a republican talking point but you know moreover it's probably a russian talking point there that you know the media is equally damaging to the middle east and to america which you know honestly the democrats should probably be defending the news media at this point and then also talking about how you know it's it's like the americans fault for what's going on in there that that it's the Americans fault for um, for all of the problems in uh, in Syria to begin with which is also sort of a, a Russian and uh, a Russian talking point as well and so it's it's really just fascinating to see you know how they just how they handle this wild card that is Tulsi Gabbard
3: yeah she just comes out and if you're interested about Tulsi Gabbard You know, I recommend that you take a listen to our episode. It's actually number 40 and it's on the Gabbard Doctrine, as we called it. And uh, this is one of our most listened to episodes here on Subliminally Correct. People really liked it. And so some of the things we talk about there is how she uses code language to call out to those who serve in the military and who are related to that or are perhaps military adjacent whether she's considered leaving the Democratic Party, and a lot about kind of her past and, you know, how does that link in some catchphrases that she uses. So, you know, if this is interesting to you, you know, definitely take a listen to that episode. And it's it's really interesting how she just keeps hitting on that point. You know, this regime change wars is something that um, her and her supporters want her to keep highlighting or You know, again, maybe, you know, there's some other um, things that are going on there. But then you hear Elizabeth Warren. And so if we really turn our attention to that, how does Elizabeth Warren spin here? Well, she says, look. And then as she says, look, then she starts talking about values of, you know, this is what we want to be doing in the Middle East. Like she's not really giving specifics. It's all very high level. And she says, we have to do it the right way. Well, which way is that specifically? You know, we're not we're not sure. But then very quickly, she pivots to talking about Trump and all the bad things that he has done. And then she says, we need to do this in a negotiated solution. There is no military solution. Then we hear Buttigieg come in. Well, respectfully, Congresswomen, and I listened to this twice that he was actually addressing both of them. He said, I think that is dead wrong. What is he talking about? You know, uh, We're not sure what that is exactly. Um, So he's going up to them head to head. He's creating this controversy. And of course, these debates are meant to create controversy. The moderators are looking to spark controversy. They're looking to have a fight. And the candidates themselves are looking to distinguish themselves. In other words, be different from the other people up on stage, which creates conflict. And he talks about this ashamed... This ashamed idea. For the first time, soldiers are ashamed for what they've done. Well, that's kind of hard to prove, don't you think, about the first time something happens, this is what's going on. They, they feel ashamed. And then much in that way that we just saw Biden do, now Buddha judge, the moderate, the mid, the industrial Midwest, calm guy starts getting really hyped up, and you take that away, and you take away what makes America America, and it makes the world a much more dangerous place. And he gets into this real intensity with his voice there at the end, um, and you know, as as they continue to debate a little bit about it, but basically that was, you know, that that was a lot of the idea.
0: So in this next clip. We're going to hear a question about gun violence prevention uh, in which Beto and Buda judge seem to be getting into a really heated conversation. And you can see how they both sort of uh, try to outdo each other and try to sort of uh, pivot and, uh, and talk about different things and not necessarily actually answer the question. So let's listen to these two get into it. And this won't be their first time, this this debate, that they have crossed paths. We remember the the uh, section at the beginning where they were arguing back and forth. And so they sort of maybe carry some of that resentment here to the uh, the later part of the debate. So let's take a listen.
12: We want to turn back to domestic issues and the epidemic of gun violence in this country. We're less than 100 miles from Dayton, Ohio. We're two months. A gunman killed nine people using an AR-15 style weapon with a high capacity magazine. Congressman O'Rourke, in the last debate, you said, quote, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47, but when you were asked how you'd enforce a mandatory buyback, you said police wouldn't be going door to door. So how exactly are you going to force people to give up their weapons? You don't even know who has those weapons.
1: Look, we're going to make sure That the priority is saving the lives of our fellow americans i think almost everyone on this stage agrees that it's not right and as president would seek to ban the sale of ar-15s and ak-47s those are weapons of war they were designed to kill people effectively efficiently on a battlefield you mentioned the massacre in in dayton nine people killed in under 40 seconds in el paso texas 22 were killed in under Three minutes, and the list goes on throughout the country. So, if the logic begins with those weapons being too dangerous to sell, then it must continue by acknowledging with 16 million AR 15s and AK 47s out there, they are also too dangerous to own. Every single one of them is a potential instrument of terror. Just ask Hispanics in Texas. Univision surveyed them. More than 80% feared that they would be a victim of a mass terror attack like the one in El Paso that was targeted at Mexican Americans and immigrants, inspired in part by this president's racism and hatred that he's directed at communities like mine in El Paso. So I expect my fellow Americans to follow the law. The same way that we enforce any provision, any law that we have right now. We don't go door to door to do anything in this country to enforce the law. I expect Republicans, Democrats, gun owners, non-gun owners alike to, to respect let me follow and
12: follow up. the law. Just to follow up, your expectations aside, uh, your website says you will find people who don't uh, give up their weapons. That doesn't take those weapons off the street. So to be clear, exactly how are you going to take away weapons From people who do not want to give them up and you don't know where they are if someone
1: does not turn in an ar-15 or an ak-47 one of these weapons of war or or brings out in public and, and brandishes it in an attempt to intimidate as we saw when we were at kent state uh recently then that weapon will be taken from them uh if they persist there will be other consequences from law enforcement but the expectation is that Americans will follow the law. I believe in this country. I believe in my fellow Americans. I believe that they will do the right thing. Thank you.
12: Mr. Uh, Mayor Buttigieg, just yesterday, you referred to mandatory buybacks as confiscation and said that Congressman O'Rourke has been picking a fight to try to stay relevant. Your response on guns?
7: Well, Congressman, you just made it clear that you don't know how this is actually going to take weapons off the streets. If you can develop the plan further, I think we can have a debate about it. But we can't wait. People are dying in the streets right now. We can't wait for universal background checks that we finally have a shot to actually get through. We can't wait to ban the sale of new weapons and high-capacity magazines so we don't wind up with millions more of these things on the street. We can't wait for red flag laws that are going to disarm domestic abusers and prevent suicides, which are not being talked about nearly enough as a huge part of the gun violence epidemic in this country. We cannot wait for purity tests. We have to just get something done.
12: This Uh, this is not a purity
7: test. This
1: is is a country that loses 40,000 of our fellow Americans every year to gun violence. This is a crisis, and we've got to do something about it. And those challenges that you described are not mutually exclusive to the challenges that I'm describing. I want to make sure we have universal background checks and red flag laws and that we end the sale of these weapons of war. But to use the analogy of health care, it would be as though we said, look, We're we're for primary care, but let's not talk about mental health care because that's a a bridge too far. People need that primary care now, so let's save that for another day. No, let's decide what we are going to believe in, what we are going to achieve, and then let's bring this country together in order to do that. Listening to my fellow Americans, to those moms who demand action, to those students who march for our lives, who in fact came up with this extraordinary bold peace plan that calls for mandatory buybacks, let's follow their inspiration and lead and not be limited by the polls and the consultants and the focus groups, let's Mayor do what's right judge we response. have time to do what's right. Mayor
7: Buttigieg. The problem isn't the polls. The problem is the policy. And I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal. Everyone on this stage is determined to get something done. Everyone on this stage recognizes, or at least I thought we did, that the problem It's not other Democrats who don't agree with your particular idea of how to handle this. The problem is the National Rifle Association and their enablers in Congress, and we should be united in taking the fight for them. That's that's a mischaracterization,
1: Anderson. I've got to answer this. Never took you or anyone else on who disagrees with me on this issue. But when you, Mayor Buttigieg, described this policy as a shiny object, uh, I don't care what that meant to me or my candidacy. But to those who have survived gun violence, those who've lost a loved one to an AR-15 and AK-47, March for Our Lives, formed in the courage of students willing to stand up to the NRA and conventional politics and poll-tested politicians, that was a slap in the face to every single one of those groups and every single survivor of a mass casualty assault with an AR-15 and an AK-47. Thank thank- we must buy them back. What we owe thank- to
7: those survivors is to actually deliver a solution. I'm glad you offered up All that right. analogy to health care because this is really important. We are at the cusp of building a new American majority to actually do things that congressmen and senators have been talking about with almost no impact for my entire adult life. This is really important, okay? On on guns, we are this close to an assault weapons ban. That would be huge. And we're going to get wrapped around the axle in a debate over whether it's Hell, yes, we're going to take your guns. We have an opportunity Thank to Mary, deliver health care to up. everybody. And some S- of the stage are saying it doesn't count. Do the right. give somebody, so let's be obliterated. I want to give other, to yes, give other candidates a
12: chance.
3: Now, what we hear here is that, okay, Beto starts off talking about, you know, answering this question about, okay, so we're going to, hell, yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. How are you going to do that if you're not actually going to show up at people's doors and police it? And so what he does is he moves into, okay, well, this is why gun violence is such an issue. This is why it is such a challenge. And you know what? They're right for calling Beto out on not being specific because he's not specific. But then he does let slip here that if someone brandishes the firearm or someone does not surrender it, quote, that weapon will be taken from them. Okay, How? In what way will it be taken from them? We don't know, but that implies some sort of police action in which they would actually go in and take the weapon from them. Um, that, of course, is a dangerous, you know, proposition. There, you know that that uh, they're talking about, and so he's really talking about the the values. And then the moderators let him finish, and then Buttigieg comes in, and he really goes into this very cadence of you know we can't wait for this we can't wait for that we can't wait for this other thing he marks out his words in a very rhythm kind of way after he tells beto you know when you know right now you don't have a plan if you have a plan then we can debate but right now we can't debate about it and so he then just says you know we're going to we're going to go into that and they go back and forth a little bit you know between you know, with each other, Um, you know, Beto talks about um, it's not a shiny object, you know, for those who have survived gun violence. And when he says that, he appeals directly, you know, to those people. Um, There's just so many little aspects here where they start going back and forth between each other, and it becomes a war of who can have the quickest retort. But what you want to notice is what is the level of detail or specificity versus abstraction. And at what point in this, and both of them are doing that, right? Beto does it a little bit more, but both of them are doing it in terms of going and becoming more abstract versus talking about specifics of what is actually going to happen. You know, Buttigieg says, the problem isn't polls, the problem is the policy. Well, that's a nice little catchphrase, but then... But to judge, what exactly is the policy that you are proposing? Can you be, you know, specific about that as well?
0: Yeah, I just found this entire section um, totally fascinating and something that we just couldn't let go because, you know, they are really at the height of metaphorical language and these pivoting um, and and, and uh, you know reframing. Um, it's really exactly what we want to you know hear and break down on a show like this. So, you know, my favorite part here is, is the way that, you know, Beto is asked a very question, a very specific question about his plan. He pivots, like, um, like Taylor said, into talking about values instead of that actual plan. And then Judge comes back and calls Beto out on not having an actual plan. But then what does he do? He just turns into talking about values and not an actual plan. So it, it it's really interesting how you know Buddha Judge gets away with calling out Beto on not having a plan, and then he doesn't have a plan either. And sort of his plan is let's focus on healthcare. So it it's just it's it's fascinating the way that he's able to do that, and you don't really notice where that turn occurs. Um we also have a lot of uh a lot of reframing um with Beto and a lot of um and metaphorical metaphorical language. So Beto does this reframing here. He says, if the logic begins with those weapons being too dangerous to sell, and then he says a little bit more, then it must continue by acknowledging that they're too dangerous to own. Um, And so that's how he sort of justifies his buyback by using that sort of catchy phrase right there that sort of of, uh, has a little bit of alliteration to it. Now, he also uses some terms here. He calls guns potential instruments of terror and keeps using the words weapons of war. And so they're no longer guns, they're no longer firearms, they are weapons of war and potential instruments of terror that are going to terrorize certain groups of people. And so that speaks very strongly because like when you hear the the phrase potential instrument of terror, what do you think about? And the term weapons of war, what do you think about? Well, you can think about a lot of things. You can think about a potential instrument of terror. Maybe that's, you know, we're, we're talking about jihadists and, and uh, Middle Eastern terrorism. Maybe we're talking about domestic terrorism and, you know, uh, these guys on the border with, uh, with guns um, chasing down immigrants. You know, maybe we're talking about, you know, these people who walk into uh, Walmart super centers and shoot people. There's a lot of sort of uh, uh, things that you can come up with in your mind, depending on who you are or what group you're in. It's a very broad phrase. Um, Same thing with weapons of war. That speaks to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And and Beto sort of throws them out there um, very casually. and allows them to um, take on their own meaning for each individual person. And so, you know, Beto, when he's put on the moment and forced to address his plan. Um, he, he doesn't at all, but he manages to pivot into talking about personal experiences of Americans. And so, you know, he sort of gets flustered and he sort of doesn't really know, you know, how to address Buttigieg's criticisms. And he jumps into this thing about uh, of talking about, you know, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to what it means to my campaign when you call my, my plan a shiny object. I'm talking about real Americans doing real American things because they're real Americans and we're not real Americans up here, but I've talked to them and they're there. And, you know, it's, it's like his shtick that he's just practiced so much that when he's nervous and he's flustered and he's really put on the spot there and, and maybe he's feeling a little embarrassed because Judge sort of called him out, uh, not just once, but this is now like at least the second time that he's had a confrontation with Judge. And, and been on maybe the the, the the negative end of that. He doesn't know what to do and falls into this whole real Americans thing again. Um, and, I, you know, he, you can see it on his face that he knows that he lost this engagement here and buddha judge gets the applause and and so that's just what's so fascinating to me about this whole thing.
3: Yeah, I mean it's like when we were watching the clips of Beto and you can listen back through our episodes where we talked about the debates between Beto and Ted Cruz in Texas and you know the question was, you know, Beto he's a really good motivating speaker in terms of his thematic appeals, his big picture language, his value basis. But when it came to actually talking about specific policy points, well, that's definitely his weakness. It's much more a strength of Buttigieg's and, you know, probably of this debate, much more someone like Elizabeth Warren than it is of Beto. You know, he just doesn't have it um, within him. And what was really interesting and why this hit Beto so strongly is that earlier on in this debate, he had kind of congratulated or, you know, appreciated um, Buttigieg for his service in the military so when Buttigieg says I don't need lessons from you on courage personal or political then you know of course that is coming in really directly and Beto can say nothing and the reason why he's so upset there is that he just basically affirmed that this guy has courage earlier on in the same debate so you know that's that's what's going on So, all right, I think that's all the time that we have for today, everyone. So if you really like the show, and we know that you do, please make sure to go on iTunes to rate and review the show. In addition... Scroll down into the show notes, go onto our website. Also, it has there a button there. It says support us for as little as a cup of coffee. You can get all the subscriber only content on Patreon and also support the show. And so please go and do that now. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Remember to communicate with us, send us an email, let us know what you think of the show and also your suggestions for episodes. And until next time, we will see you in two weeks.